Uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 21. Uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 16 to, uh, through 21. You recall last week we considered this parable of the sower. And Jesus taught us that there, he, he described the word of God as a seed. A seed that naturally sprouts and brings forth a bountiful crop. But we also learned that our hearts are like infertile soil. Some of us have hearts that resemble the well-trodden path. Other, other of, others of us have hearts that resemble the rocky soil. Some of us have hearts that resemble the thorny soil. But what unites all of our hearts is that they're infertile. So we need the work of the Holy Spirit to cultivate our hearts into good soil. Soil that's able to receive the seed of the Word of God. Because the Word of God can do what it naturally does. has produced a bountiful crop. Well, here in our passage this evening, Jesus now compares his teaching and the Word of God more broadly to a lamp. A lamp that shows forth light in the midst of darkness. So please turn your attention to Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 21. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's word. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brother came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd, and he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, if you recall from last week, in verse 10 specifically, Jesus said something quite striking. He said that the gospel or this, this secret or mystery of the kingdom of God is revealed to some, meaning his disciples, but to others, it's concealed in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah and he says that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. Well, a question and an objection that the hearers of this may have had in their minds is, is this, is, is this good news of the kingdom, this, this mystery of the kingdom of God, is it some sort of secret knowledge that's only reserved for Jesus' inner circle, that is the disciples? See, remember, Jesus told the parable to the crowd, but then it was the disciples who asked for further clarification, and Jesus gave this explanation to the disciples. But the rest of it was concealed in the parable. So 
those who, who really didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. So is this good news of Canaan? Is it some sort of secret knowledge that he's only disclosing to his disciples? Well, to answer this question, Jesus now compares his teaching, or the word of God more broadly, to a lamp. A lamp that shows forth light. And I'd like us to consider that imagery uh, this evening in, in more detail. And to do so, we're first going to consider uh, Jesus' teaching as a lamp. And then we'll consider how we are to listen to Jesus' teaching. And lastly, we're going to consider the blessing of listening to Jesus' teaching. So first, let's consider Jesus' teaching as a lamp. Well, as you see in verse 17, Jesus says that no one, no one in their right mind would light a lamp only to conceal it, only to put a jar over it, a basket, or put it under the bed. Again, we have to remember this context that Jesus is speaking. They, of course, did not have electricity. They could not go to the wall and flip on a switch. After it was dark, their only source of light was a fire, a lamp. So no one, no one would light a lamp after dark only to conceal it. Its purpose was to give light to those in the room, to disclose the darkness. Jesus is comparing his teaching to, to this lamp. As I mentioned, he does this to, to answer a, a question or objection which may have been in, in people's minds in light of the parable of the sower. In light of verse 10, is this only for a select few who is some sort of secret knowledge? I think we have to admit that Jesus does, to some extent, conceal his knowledge. Or his, his, his message, his teaching. He does, to some extent, put his, his teaching under a jar. We saw that in verse 10, as he explicitly said that his parables, his parables, or one of the purposes of his parables, was to conceal his truth. I mean, that's quite fascinating, isn't it? I think most of us think of the parables of Jesus as primarily being uh, used to illuminate his teaching. Although that, that is a purpose, Jesus says one of his primary purposes is to conceal his teaching. Furthermore, uh, consider those instances where Jesus heals someone miraculously, but then he commands them not to say anything about it. Uh, we'll see that later in chapter 8. Well, think of the Jesus in Matthew 10 saying that he came in his earthly ministry to the Jews. Not to the Gentiles. That was yet to come. Many of us have probably recognized that the Gospels are hard to interpret. Especially uh, compared to the epistles. Now, of course, there are hard things to interpret in the epistles. But in the Gospels, especially on, when considered on their own, things can seem quite ambiguous compared to the clear-cut, straightforward, doctrinal form formulations that we see in many of the epistles. So I think we have to, to recognize that Jesus was, to some extent, concealing the light, the lamp, of his teaching. However, 
Jesus did not conceal his teaching and leave it that way. Because look at what he says in verse 17. Or verse, uh, verse 17. For, or nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Jesus is saying, although, although some of his teaching is concealed in parables during his earthly ministry, for a specific reason, because he quotes Isaiah, judgment on unbelieving Jews who don't want to hear what he has to say to begin with, they have hardened hearts. He says, it will be made manifest. It will be known. It will come to light. Well, when is that going to happen? What happens after Pentecost? The Spirit is poured out, and the apostles carry on the torch of Jesus' mission. The apostles who take the gospel, the light of this gospel, to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. Look at the book of Acts. It begins with the apostles in Jerusalem, and where does it end? Paul is in Rome, the end of the known world at that time. So Jesus wants us to know that his earthly ministry isn't fulfilled until the apostles have done their work. As they, brought, as they would bring the message to the end of, of the known world in their time. And so in this age, it would be sinful for a, a Christian minister to stand up and, and seek to conceal the truth of God's word in parables as judgment on unbelieving Jews. That was a there, there were specific purposes for Jesus doing that in his own era and God's plan of salvation. But we now live in the age of light. We now live in the age of light. And churches now, between these two advents of Christ, are to be a beacons of this light, this lamp of, of God's truth. And have you ever wondered, especially in our day and age, when there's so many groups that gather under the name of church, how do I know what a true church is compared to just a sect that calls themselves a church. Well, one of our uh, confessions, the Belgic Confession, we use it as a statement of faith. It tells us that God's word gives us three main indicators for what a true church must possess to be a true church. It says that it must, it must preach the gospel. It says it must rightly administer the two sacraments that Christ himself gave us. And lastly, it, it must exercise church discipline. What that means is that there must be elders who are over a specific number of people. That leads to the question, how do we know who those people are? The elders are to be accountable for. That's why we need church membership. People taking vows and pledging themselves to be accountable to a specific body, specific eldership. And so if they reject the faith and their vows, then church discipline is is used in order to restore the wandering sheep. But the chief among these, arguably, is the preaching of the gospel. The heralding of this light, this, of, of, of God's truth. In this sinful age, you know, every church, to some extent, covers it up. We don't live in, in the new creation yet. But we believe that the Reformed tradition, the, the understanding of scripture that was uncovered during the Reformation, 
we see in our catechism and other confessions, we believe that they reflect the light of God's truth and Jesus' teaching the best in this age. Or to think of it using the imagery of Jesus, the Reformed tradition has the tallest stand for us to place the lamp of God's truth to shine forth to a watching world. And this is why we, we're doing what we're doing. We want to see a church, established church here in Gate Harbor, because we believe that we have a treasure in our own tradition. So you can think of it this way. You know, the lamp of, of Jesus' teaching was somewhat concealed as he walked this earth. But between the two advents of Christ at the age of life, the gospel is going forth to the nations. It's heralded. It's going freely. But we're looking forward to that day when the light of God's truth will shine the brightest in Christ's second coming, when all darkness will disappear. The, the age to come will be issued in completely. But I want to say one more thing about this imagery of, of light and a lamp. I want you to notice that this is not a command that Jesus is giving us. He's not saying, let your light shine. He doesn't say that to you. Rather, he's describing the nature of the teaching of the word of God. He did this last week for us in the parable of the sower. He described the word of God as a seed, a seed that naturally sprouts, that naturally produces a bountiful crop. Well, here he's describing the word of God as a light. A light that triumphs over darkness. Think for a moment. When light and darkness meet, who wins? Light wins every time. The boys and girls. You're in a dark room with no windows. Turn on the light, what happens? The darkness disappears. You start to see the furniture, the color on the wall. Jesus, again, teaching us the power of his teaching, the power of his word to triumph over the darkness of sin, of unbelief, and of death. Comforting thing. We consider his, his teaching, his word, as, as light, as a lamp. Well, now in verse 18, we come to the first imperative, that is a command of this passage. Look at verse 18, you'll see Jesus says, Take care then how you hear. Take care then how you hear. Leads to my second point, is we are then called to listen, listen to Jesus' teaching. Now, those in Jesus' day were, of course, were to be careful to hear his words. Many in the crowd had, had hearts that resembled the thorny, the rocky, the well-trodden soil. Really, only the, only the disciples who had that, that teachable spirit of, of wanting to know the meaning of his parable. But today, we too are called to hear, to heed how we hear, you could say. And this theme of hearing is quite prominent in Luke chapter 8. You know, if you look back to, to verse 8, after he gets done explaining the parable without an explanation, he then says, He who has hear, ears, let him hear. 
And then verse 15, as he gives an explanation for the meaning of this parable, he describes those of the good soil as those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And then verse 21, which we'll be considering in a few minutes, he says, my brother, or my mother, my brothers, are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus is concerned about his people listening, listening to what he's saying. He doesn't just want a crowd following him. He wants a people who, who listen, who take to heart his word. And part of the reason why he's teaching in parables, he's dealing his people in parables, because his people didn't want to hear what he had to hear. Oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting story, interesting uh, parable. They thought no further about it. They had hardened hearts. So what is this true and proper hearing that Jesus is calling his people to exercise? Well, he wants us to hear or listen in such a way that it brings forth fruit, that leads to action and change. You want to know how much you are you believe in something? Look at your actions. Is a pretty good indicator of where your heart is, what you're believing, what you're resting, what you're trusting in. And the great doctrines of our faith, they're not meant just to be known or articulated, they're meant to lead to confidence, lead to trust, lead to comfort, patience, love. So if these are not present, we need to go back and, and ask ourselves, what, what is our heart? Believing. You know, Paul in 1 Timothy 6 2, he, he sees such a close connection between doctrine and godliness. He says, he speaks and commends this doctrine that accords with godliness. So doctrine and godliness, doctrine and practice, they, they go hand in hand. They are united not to be put asunder. For instance, when everything in there's times when everything in your life seems to be crumbling. You need to have a firm belief, trust in God's providence, his fatherly care of your life, so that you don't crumble as well. Or those moments when your conscience, conscience is accusing you of your many sins, you need to have a firm belief in the fullness of the gospel what Christ has done for you without any merit of your own, so you don't sink in despair. The doctrines, the doctrines that we confess, they're imminently practical as we go through this trying age in a fallen world. Now, during the time of the Reformation, there was a proliferation of confessions, catechisms that were uh, written and, and brought forth. You know, if you think of the late Middle Ages, the time when really the truth of God's word, the light of God's word, was largely concealed with just little rays sprouting out here and there. It was still there, it was sometimes hard to find. But the Reformation, in a lot of ways, was a taking off of, of that basket. 
reformers, they, they recognized they now needed to teach the people who had largely no knowledge of God's word, or very little knowledge of God's word. They wrote catechisms to instruct confessions, to articulate the light of God's truth. In our own Reformed tradition, the three greatest catechisms that were written, and I would say chief among them is our Heidelberg Catechism, uh, but then the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism. These were Reformed catechisms written in England uh, for the British Isles, and in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it has a whole question devoted to listening properly to the Word of God. I think that's quite informative. I think if you had the task of writing a catechism, which is a summary document, you can't say everything about God's Word. You're meant to condense the faith so they can instruct people, newcomers to the faith. And if you had that task, would you include a question and answer about how to properly listen and hear the Word of God? They tell us that they, they recognize, our forebears of faith recognize the importance of what Jesus is saying here. Take care then how you hear. So let me ask you, how are you listening? Is it tr- are the truths, the doctrines that we read about in, in the scriptures, are they merely something that you know, that you can articulate, or are they in you in such a way that it shapes your disposition. It leads to virtue and fruit in your life. How are you listening, hearing the word of God? Well, Jesus not only tells us that we are to listen well and carefully, but he also tells us that there's a great blessing that comes when we listen well. Which leads us to uh, my third and final point. The blessing of listening to the word of God, to Jesus' teaching. So remember the context. There's a great crowd around Jesus. We've said this in verse 4. That people from many towns and villages gathered to hear Jesus teach. And this crowd was so great that Jesus' own mother and brothers could not get through the crowd to speak to Jesus. So they likely sent a message up through the crowd saying, you know, we can't, we can't come and see you. And Jesus is told this. There's no mother and brother. They cannot even get close to, to Jesus because of the, the great crowd that's surrounding him. And notice Jesus' response in verse 21. He says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus here is introducing the great doctrine of adoption, of spiritual adoption. Notice notice that Jesus says that this great blessing comes our way as we hear the word of God, first and foremost. That's to say, this great uh, idea of adoption is unlocked for us by faith, as we hear with faith. And then as we do that word, it's and evidence that we are members of the family of God. One of the great blessings of adoption, being in the family of God, is that God is, is our Father. Now this should astound us, it should blow us away. 
We're used to saying that. We pray that in the Lord's Prayer every week. Our Father who is in heaven. But we cannot even begin to comprehend the utter terror it is to have God, the almighty creator of the universe, as our judge. He's holy, he's righteous, and he demands perfection. I think we all recognize that we fall far short of perfection. It's utter terror that we can't even begin to comprehend it. Consequently, then, we can't even comprehend that the blessing, the comfort it is that God no longer is our judge, but he's our benevolent father. And further, we also have a great older brother in the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And as we considered a few weeks ago, as Jesus raised the, the widow's son from the, from the dead, that this, this high priest, this elder brother that we have in Christ, he is compassionate towards him. The same compassion that we see uh, that he felt towards that widow 2,000 years ago is the compassion he feels towards us, even this evening, with whatever we're going through. God shows a great blessing. I'd like to reflect just a few more moments on, on this idea of adoption. When speaking of, of adoption here, Jesus is, is saying that everyone has two families. A natural family and a spiritual family. And he's not seeking to denigrate the natural family. He's not seeking to you know, be disrespectful to his own mother and brothers. He acknowledges, I think, implicitly, that the natural family exists, and throughout Scripture, we see that it's a very good institution. However, what he is doing is elevating the spiritual family. We know that in the new creation, the age to come, there won't be many, many small individual natural families that make up the new creation. Rather, there's going to be one family who has God as their father and Christ as their husband and elder brother. Jesus himself says that in the age to come there won't be marriage, there will be living as the angels do in heaven. But in this age, God has instituted the natural family and it is a good thing. We know that God works through the natural family. As God promised Abraham in Genesis that he will be a God to both him and to his children for an everlasting covenant. And then gave Abraham the sign of that promise in circumcision. And then Paul tells us that Abraham is a paradigmatic figure for the new covenant. And so that promise that I will be a God to you and your children is still in force in the new covenant. And baptism, which replaces circumcision, points to that promise. This is why we give baptism to infants. In fact, one of the main ways the church grows through our history is through the natural family. So it's, it's a good institution for this age. However, I think there's a temptation to so emphasize the goodness of the natural family, especially when culture seeks to attack it, that we fail to hear what Jesus is saying here. The spiritual family is even superior to that of the natural family. More specifically, I think churches... You know, churches can fall into the temptation of, of so emphasizing being a family-friendly church, which is good. But then there's that implicit judgment upon people who don't have the natural family of their own. Singles, widows, couples who, who 